Welcome to the Uncomplicated Iris Interview Podcast. This is our channel dedicated to schools and multi-academy trust management and leadership. My name is Simon Freeman. I'm the Managing Director for Education here at Iris Software Group, and I'm delighted to be joined today by our guest speaker, Lord Jim Knight. Now, Jim doesn't need much of an introduction, but as a recap, he's a former cabinet minister, member of the Privy Council and the House of Lords. He's also successfully co-founded the TES Institute, uh, the fifth largest qualifier of teacher in the country and general all-round education guru. So Lord Knight does a lot of work in the education sector using his skills and expertise commercially as a non-exec board member and is working closely on the relationships between education, skills, employment policy and many things more. Jim, I hope I've done you justice there. Have I I missed anything? (laughs) Well, I guess the only thing that may be pertinent to this is that I chair the EACT Multi-Academy Trust Board, which is a a chain of 28 schools nationally. We're shortly to expand and add a few more. A very relevant point, and I guess gives you even more insight into some of the topics we're going to be discussing today. Today, we're going to be discussing what it takes to effectively lead a multi-academy trust at the moment. So within multi-academy trusts, the exec leadership team are accountable for implementing the trust strategy and the operating plans, deciding where to put resources and how best to drive impact. It's about creating a culture of ethical leadership and ensuring that the team in the trust is made up of those with the necessary skills and expertise. But what qualities are needed for that successful leadership team? And what can trusts do to identify and attract the leaders of tomorrow? Some people think that the skills required to run a multi-academy trust don't naturally exist within the education sector, and that some of the skills required to run these large organisations with huge budgets are more associated with maybe large government organisations or commercial and private sector organisations. And I think it's probably true to say we've seen some big hitters coming in from the private sector to take up some of those key roles. But I guess question to you then, Jim, is it preferable to appoint a MAT CEO who's come up through the ranks of education and, and understands the challenges that, that go on within education in the UK? Or do you think you know, alternative career routes are, are equally possible? My preference is to hire someone who has the credibility of having been a teacher, having led a school, knowing what good looks like in the classroom but who then also has the strategic leadership skills and be able to manage a large organisation. Now, there are really good examples of MATs being led by people who don't necessarily have that, and they've been able to ensure that they've got a really good education team who can then take care of that element of the core business, and then the CEO brings their other strategic skills, their skills in being able to manage the highly regulated environment, the skills in respect of all of the, the people side of the business, etc. So it can work. And it might be that I'm biased, you know, in the last couple of years, I've taken on a CEO who worked his way up was the director of education for a large multi-academy trust and then was ready to step up to being a ceo and was at the same time doing an an mba and has all of those things that i wanted uh, and is working really well so that that might be my personal bias yeah i I think it's a really interesting one i do talk to a fair few ceos the very successful ones have got education background and education experience and i think on balance the learning curve for the education part of the role and as you say the ability to you know ensure schools are performing to offset standards and all the rest of it that learning curve is much steeper for somebody who's come in from the private sector than maybe the business leadership challenge is for somebody who's coming from the education sector so i think the most successful ones i think have certainly got education background but to your point 
there's always a few who are able to demonstrate that learning and do an amazing job, even though they haven't got that education background. It's a question of risk in a way, like everything, isn't it? And the Ofsted risk is a really major risk that everyone is trying to manage and the related things around safeguarding and so on. And they are very education specific. And I guess that's what informs my prejudice, if you like. Which sort of leads me to my next question then. I mean, this is a sector that it is difficult to recruit into. And the more that the sector can show strong career growth for those individuals that join, I think absolutely the better for everybody. Do you think the MAT CEO is an attractive role for ambitious teachers and head teachers? You know, is there a kind of mapped out and nice progression in terms of professional development? And if there isn't, given what we've just said, how do you think that could be achieved? Look, I don't think there is that straightforward a career progression route. And I, I know there is some effort being put into kind of, you know, is there an equivalent to the NPQH, the National Professional Qualification and Headship for those that want to become MAT leaders. Yeah, I'm sure it would help if those career progressions were, were straightforward. I think we've got a much bigger problem recruiting into headship of a school where the accountability pressures are acute, where the work-life balance is it's very challenging with you know, most heads that I know working ex- exceptionally long hours, both in secondary and in primary. And you know, we see that reluctance on the part of deputy heads of other members of senior leadership teams in schools. They look at what the head does and there's quite a lot of fear and worry about whether or not they want to step up. Now, to step out of headship and then on on into a head of education, a director of education role for a mat, probably with a bit more money, but in a way with less responsibility, and that then being a stepping stone to potentially running a whole mat and even more money and you know, a bigger team to support you, that might be quite attractive. And if we can work that career progression out, that might work. But we do have to solve the problem of enough people wanting to be heads as, if you like, potentially the big blockage in the funnel. That's a really interesting point. And I've got family who've been in head teacher roles and moved out of them and saw firsthand how challenging that was. And I guess, to your point, if you're a deputy or other member of the senior teaching staff, looking at that role and, and making that first jump can be quite a daunting experience. I guess the sort of obvious career progression would be you move up through middle leadership and senior leadership into headship you then perhaps go to a second school that might be more challenging you get it successfully through Ofsted get it into the right place get it secure then people will come after you and will want you to either take on even more difficult schools with even more pressure in possibly a less attractive area of the country for you to work in or you move into a mat leadership role and that progression feels relatively familiar but built into that then has to be the professional development and working up those management skills it is a different proposition running a set of schools to running a single school now there's the executive head thing which you know became very popular some years ago now and and still exists and it exists within mats so you might end up being the head of two or three schools. And and that can look a bit like one of the small mats at a large mat level. I still think it's a big jump to just take your headship skills, which become your exec headship skills, and then apply them at a mat level. I think you need some other management training on top of that to really provide strategic leadership for an organization that might be educating 10, 15,000 pupils, employing two, 3,000 staff. That's a big job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you look at any moderate sized town in the UK, probably the school or the school network is by far the biggest 
budget and employer in the area aggregately and you know those are huge responsibilities to lead aren't they with a you know very demanding skill sets yeah and you're a community leader as well you know we saw that during the pandemic where the schools you know they were providing an emergency service for those parents who had to go in and work doing various things in the health service and elsewhere and providing education for those vulnerable children but there were community leaders as well schools are, are these places in our neighborhoods that we look to and they provide sports facilities they provide community facilities they might provide worship facilities so you've got that community role as well as your core responsibility of delivering great education for kids absolutely agree and i think really pleased you raised that community point Maybe if I could move on, maybe just to look a little bit wider then than just the head teacher and CEO roles. I guess any school like the sort of private sector, a diverse leadership team with different skills and different experience will help bring a, a breadth and richness of expertise to the table. What sort of qualities do you think are needed across a MAT leadership team and, and how can that right dynamic be achieved? The diversity is really important and to avoid the sort of groupthink culture emerging of the same sorts of people educated and with the same sort of background. And so, yes, having some diversity with people who aren't necessarily all from education, they haven't necessarily all come up through the ranks as teachers, that's an element of diversity that's important. I think more important, again, than that is some reflection of the communities that you serve. The multi-academy trust that I chair, we have a, a large proportion of free school meal kids. We have a large proportion of ethnic minority kids. And if we didn't have anyone on our staff who have an innate understanding of those sorts of communities and the struggles that those children have to come in every day, then I think we would really struggle to serve those those communities to support the staff who are working with those parents and working with those children well so it's a diversity of background it's a diversity of career it's a diversity ethnically and gender wise that i'm looking for to make up an effective team in the end you know the ceo has more of a responsibility in recruiting his or her own team but in terms of my challenge at a board and a governance level that's the kind of questions that i'll be asking is how do we really reflect the people that we're serving that's really interesting and i mean your point about bringing experience from not just education but outside of education I guess if you look at the academy policy, you know, moving away from just local authority delivered, that, that in itself brought interest and experience from outside the sector. But really important that it's community focused and people understand the specific challenges related to the, you know, the pupils and the areas that those schools are serving. Yes. And I think there was a trend a while ago to almost run some of these academies like a franchise and just have a sort of almost a cookie cutter approach and saying, well, this is what one of our schools looks like. This is what the behavior looks like. This is what the curriculum is going to look like. This is how we're going to train our teachers. And you'll recognize them in whatever community they're in. I think that we're moving away from that. I think there is a much stronger sense that we are embedded in our communities. We've got to adapt our model according to the setting that we're in and not try and pick pupils, but have pupils come and pick us because we best reflect who they are and where they come from. At Iris, Simon, you will also be always having to grapple with the diversity of the team that you have working with you and, and for your people. And I assume you have the same kind of issues, don't you? We absolutely do. And it's part of Iris's strength. I mean, Alona, our CEO, is very, very passionate about this. It flows through the rest of the organisation. As a business, undoubtedly, we are more successful because we bring a wide range of people from 
different backgrounds, different experiences, you know, with different views on life. And we get very successful results as a result of that. So I think there's a huge amount of strong evidence that it improves the outcomes of the organisations. And to your point, whether that's schools or business environment, it, it definitely builds better teams. And just in terms of bringing people in from outside the sector, certainly we deal a lot with finance and HR directors, and we see that they can probably be relatively easily recruited from outside the the sector to help the mat operate a little bit more like a business. Do you think it's suitable and do you think it's the right thing to bring in those leaders from HR and finance from outside the sector? Yes and no, I guess. I'm of the view, I think, that it's sort of yes and no that HR is somewhat more sector specific than people might give it credit for, that there are peculiarities around the recruitment cycle for teachers, the notice periods, the you know, the way that the teachers pay review body works, the way they're funding the you know, the, there's a whole bunch of things that are kind of quite peculiar and weird to teaching in schools that go beyond the normal HR experience, which isn't to say that there aren't some great HR directors who have managed to pick that up, but it requires longer induction and it requires more sensitivity around the peculiarities of the sector. Finance, yeah, I mean, obviously, again, you've got a highly regulated environment. You've got to make sure that you satisfy the Education Skills Funding Agency requirements, the Academy's Handbook, Education Law, obviously, and, and then all of the audit requirements. So there's quite a bit there in terms of the sort of regulatory environment, but a good CFO with you know accountants who've got that understanding can get up to speed with that and can bring in that more strategic commercial nous that they might have build up elsewhere you can do that by growing school business managers into that role but yeah what's your balance between your ceo your cfo your coo probably having one of those functions who have experience in the commercial world is probably going to add to the previous point the diversity that you need within the leadership team rather than having them all grown up from the grassroots the coo role actually in terms of the operating environment operating estates, the technology, all the operational decisions, I think is one that is is really well suited to bring someone in from the commercial world. We talk to quite a lot of finance and HR directors, and certainly my experience in talking to HR directors is, I think it's one of those roles where a genuine combination of external private sector experience, plus a really good understanding of how education works, and to your point, the nuances around it, can deliver quite tremendous results. Maybe bringing the discipline around culture and the rigor of attracting the right people and developing and retaining and and really growing your workforce and all of the maybe private sector HR disciplines that come with that but having a really strong understanding of what motivates and drives teachers and really understanding the education kind of HR environment is the opportunity to be really quite powerful and from a business perspective we've felt that the tools that serve that industry not been as good as they should have been and we've spent a lot of time helping and working with HR directors to kind of develop that. That's really interesting, Simon, because I guess one of the issues when you bring in someone from outside of education is they might discover that we're doing things in a slightly antediluvian fashion with tools that sort of went out with the arc, and they're used to much more sophistication in the use of data and the use of technology than is currently the norm in schools. And I know technology companies like Iris are trying to fix that problem, but it's one of the other things that has to sort of be worked through is... Yeah, you might think, yeah, it'd be great to bring in someone with external commercial experience, but 
that then might ramp up a demand for your whole IT stack to be rebuilt. There's a whole bunch of other things that might become a consequence that may well be the right thing, but you've got to know that you can afford that in terms of time and money to be able to get that done. Absolutely. And that's exactly what, what we've seen playing out. You know, we've had people turn up who've asked really simple questions like how many people have we got? What's the attendance rates like? Is everyone up to date with their compliance and training? Can we manage you know, risk and retention properly? And the tools and data to answer those simple questions just don't exist. And therefore, you immediately go into obtaining that data through system upgrades and all the rest of it in order to be able to do some of the next steps around really taking the organization forwards. Yeah, and I think that is an essential journey for the sector to take. But people need to be really conscious that when they're making these appointments, there may be things that will follow that they've got to be ready for. When you've got multiple entities, you know, lots and lots of individual schools, how do you think Matt can create that clear strategy or operating plan across all their sites? How do you make sure that the centralised services mindset doesn't degrade or or have an impact on the very kind of pupil focused and attainment focused approach within the schools. And I guess maybe that centralized process is a bit foreign to the sector. How do you think that's playing out? Simon, I think it's a constant dialogue and you've got to be fairly dynamic as an organization. It might be that you've got a whole organization that has quite a few problems and you therefore need to centralize quite heavily in order to have the control in financial terms, in standard terms, whatever. But as things improve and stabilize, it's then quite important to let go and to allow more delegation and to respect the professionalism of the people that that you've probably brought in, in order to fix things and allow a bit more diversity of how different schools respond to the needs of their own local contexts and communities. So you've got to find the right balances. Within EACT, what we do is we have centralised quite a lot of the operational side of things, locating some of those operational staff within schools, but there's a sort of consistency nationally about how we run quite a lot of our operations. But the educational end, we've delegated a lot more and we have started Mm -hmm. to connect up our school leaders a lot more so that they feel a sort of shared endeavor and it's part of a culture change that we've undergone that moves away from the school serving the center to the center having to serve the schools so strategically i think there is a first question which is where are all the schools at how much do we need to control them centrally how much can we allow them to take a lot of the decisions themselves where are the economies of scale where are the diseconomies of scale and what is our culture And if you can sort of answer those questions fairly accurately and keep in touch with everyone, then I think you can probably get that right. It's a challenge, I think, that exists in business as well as in this instance in education as well. There are, as you say, economies of scale by grouping things together. But as soon as you lose that focus on the real work that gets done, you know, in the education environment, teachers in classrooms, as soon as you start having the school serving the centre, you know, potentially you've got a real problem and it, we've got to make sure that culture of the centre helping and empowering schools to ultimately be more successful, either taking things away so the schools can focus on what they're doing or giving the schools support to do those things better. I think getting that balance right is really key. And I think the same exists in business. We have the same thing in Iris with centralised services as well. Yeah. As I said, it is about being dynamic. Keep reviewing it. You know, we've commissioned an external review We've done two external reviews of governance. That was really helpful. But we also commissioned an external operational review. And that showed us that we could free up 
actually quite a lot of money and create quite a lot of efficiency by readdressing and actually delegating more down to the schools. And yeah, that has given us a big cultural win as well. And it's gone really well for us whilst still having some consistency. We've got more to do on consistency of data collection and using data more intelligently. But yeah, that sense of periodically, we will commission someone externally to come in and just have a look and guide us as to whether or not we've still got it right. And I think that review and that regular checking back in, as you say, is very important because, you know, these things do drift a little bit over time, don't they? So there's been lots of discussion about inspections and measurement criteria across schools and trusts. And the sector's relatively new. It's very challenging. And with the trust quality descriptions, clearly the DfE are trying to put some kind of guidance around this, around what metrics to use and to determine whether a trust is doing well in its key areas. Do you think there's a role for tech companies to help inform the sector on how data can be used and in kind of what fashion that might look like? Definitely. And it goes back a little to what some of the stuff we were talking about before in terms of as a sector, there might be some pretty old fashioned practice. And if you've got a multi-academy trust with multiple schools that might not have all joined at the same time, and they might have come with some legacy IT set up, a lot of it might be enterprise and not cloud-based. So machines in school offices rather than everything the data going up to a central place. There's so much that I think the school sector can learn from the outside world and the tech companies are a really good interface for that. They know what works in other sectors if they're not an education specific business and they can help us as a sector modernize Sorting out your IT is thankless, huge cost, but uh, so they also then have to demonstrate to us as tech companies that you're going to get a good return on investment in a reasonable period of time. But you know, smart, intelligent use of data, is, it's a sort of non-negotiable for the future. You know, I see that message coming clearly from government and the departments as much as anywhere else. There will be an expectation that we use data better. We use data to inform strategy and to ensure that we achieve operational efficiency. And we may well end up having to use data in accountability. Uh, we've got a new chief inspector at Ofsted who used data pretty well at Outward Grange, where he was the CEO. And we've got the Shadow Secretary of State yesterday talking about school report cards and wanting to use data for accountability. So that may well be on the horizon as well, in which case none of this is negotiable. We will all have to do it. It is interesting that there's definitely a lot of momentum in this direction. And I think as a business providing this technology back to the sector, the challenge that the sector faces, and indeed we do, is just the volume of data that gets produced. Millions of data points in a large academy trust every day. How do you sift that and surface it in a way that it's genuinely insightful and not overrun with so much information that you need to pick the relevant bits from the bits that are not going to drive real change or, or make a difference? And I think AI has a real opportunity to play here where you can identify the things that do have a real impact. It may be, Simon, that tech companies can also help educate our sector around AI and data and what data might be used for training purposes of the artificial intelligence, how we might be able to use profiles intelligently, what the ethical case is for using some of this. There's a lot of concern amongst some in the workforce around the ethics of some of this and whether or not we end up with too much of a sort of privatized future. All of those things are hugely resolvable. And there's a lot of expertise in tech companies, obviously, around helping us navigate all of that. But it's a really active conversation 
that we need to be having. Yeah, I mean, we've launched a product called Iris Central, which is our kind of data and analytics dashboard. And we have got some AI trials embedded in that that allow teachers or, or any individual to ask a question of the data and it will surface the answer in a graphical or data-driven format. These are closed box AI models, so there's no risk of any of that going outside of the environments they're in. Hugely exciting area and one that we're really, really keen to be part of. I do think it's genuinely exciting, but the next point is to get the workforce familiar enough with it to start to make some decisions about what they want from it. And just sort of on the same sort of theme, performance management statements in the trust quality description, such as the board must assure itself of financial stability, they all seem a little bit vague. We discussed with a number of trust CEOs at our regional roadshows recently about the kind of the vagueness of some of these and, and what data really help identify whether a, a trust is being successful or not. How do you think that through data or otherwise that maths can demonstrate that they've achieved these right performance measurements to you know, either DFE or their regional directors? It's a really good question, Simon, and the vagueness doesn't entirely help. It might be appropriate because it might in the end mean that all we're talking about is having a good dialogue with the regional director and having them understanding how you're doing and having some transparency around the data and and using data in a more real-time way to properly be able to see what's going on day by day, week by week, and be able to compare it to trend in the same week in the previous years. There's a danger for a trust board that you rely too heavily on the external audit, that you don't invest in enough internal audit to be able to demonstrate that to people, and that you aren't using data intelligently enough. But I think most trusts now, you know, we went through a phase where we had quite a lot that were financially doing things that were inappropriate. We now have a phase where there's a, quite a few that are financially struggling. And if you're in financial struggle, then I think the trust board are looking much more carefully just by definition at the money and making sure that it's going further. And I'd also say, you know, an interesting example for us that we've had recently was our reserves policy and thinking about how we use reserves. And you know, if you do manage to generate some surplus, when's a good time to spend that? Because it, it sort of feels like there's a lot of unpredictability in the system because of the way government funding comes through and, and the timing of that and pay claims and whether or not those are going to come through and what's going to happen to energy. So there's lots of risk kicking around. And the temptation is just to hoard any surplus that you might have and and stick it in reserves. But there comes a point when you've got to spend your reserves. And we found that by being much more acute in our use of data and thinking more clearly about when spend happens traditionally and, and how we work it, we could manage our reserves policy a little bit more intelligently to get that money out the door and being spent on children, which is ultimately what we're here for. That's really interesting because I know there's been a lot of debate about gag pooling and others, uh, uh, which is great if you're in receiving, but not not obviously if you're losing it. So you're saying, you know, that the use of data has really helped you make those decisions better and, and better use of the funds. Yes, and it's helped us with curriculum-led financial planning and how we manage our gag pooling to be somewhat more transparent with our schools so that they know whether they are net gainers or net losers from gag pooling and that if we then generate a bit of surplus along the way that we can reward those who are sort of gag losers in year surpluses we can push in the direction of those that really deserve it because they've been paying into the system rather than taking it out. 
Thank you, Jim. That's really helpful to understand kind of how you're using data to do that, which sort of leads me to the next question. How do you think a centralized technology strategy can be used to improve performance and uncover insights? I mean, there's so much information, as we talked about earlier in this, about student information from finance, compliance, HR, payroll. How do you think Matt's can kind of centralize that to get a clear view of the performance across all areas? And talked about some examples that you're using in, in EACT, but do you think mm. this is still in infancy across the sector? I think it probably is partly because there's a lot of legacy tech around and a lot of that tech doesn't necessarily talk to each other that easily. So you end up with clunky data exports imported into Excels and corruptions that then happen and it all becomes a bit ugly. And a good, well-led tech strategy, you know, and we're starting to see a few mats employing chief technology officers or chief information officers, and that's really welcome. So we can raise the standard and up the expertise within the sector and start to iron some of that out. The insights we can get from better use of data, the cost efficiencies that we can drive from good use of tech, they're something that we should be reaching for. Now, all of that comes at a cost. You know, you've got to invest in uh, disruption, money, time, expertise to get that right. And different trust boards and their exec leaders will have to make those judgments about getting a good return on that investment in the timeline that they want. But I've got absolutely no doubt that that is the profound direction of travel. And as I say, if we can up the level of expertise and understanding, particularly yeah, to go right back to the beginning of our conversation, Simon, if we've got senior leaders of Matt who have come up through the classroom, then they may not know any different. If we're bringing in more diversity from the commercial world who do know that there are smarter ways of using tech that can really help make their job easier, then we should be jumping to that if we possibly can afford it. I completely agree with that. I mean, it's something that we wake up and focus on every single day. We're trying to make all of the systems that we sell talk to each other and surface the data that exists within those systems in a coherent and sensible way that will save a huge amount of time for teachers and staff so they're not keying in data in lots of places and then having to match it together on spreadsheets. We want to remove that and we want to make sure that yeah. that data from those systems is accessible in a simple way and that is genuinely useful to leadership teams and they can ultimately make better decisions and ultimately improve outcomes for students which I guess is exactly what we're all here to try and do. Well, look, unfortunately, we have to draw it to a line there. I could have this conversation for much longer, Jim, but um, it's been <laughs> an absolute pleasure having you on and hearing your thoughts about what is a really, really important subject. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and found it insightful. Please don't forget to browse through our other episodes and subscribe to stay in the loop for future ones. Mm -hmm. And finally, again, Jim, a huge thank you for joining today to share your insights.